The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. In all of this, you'll see the details of your own story. The story of a life well-crafted. Welcome to the House of Roll. The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? This is my Populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician, and she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. And welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. It's Mother's Day. A happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. But before we go off to brunch, we've got to take a few moments to be serious. There are a lot of people in politics and in media whose purpose is to inflame your passions rather than to reason with you. But my purpose is different. I've come to inform you to give you information that will enable you to make an independent judgment on current events and to encourage you to act on your judgment. I'm a businesswoman, not a politician, so I start with the numbers. And in the numbers this week is a what if. There's also a reality. You know, it was going to be what if 100 million Americans lost all electric power at the same time. What would happen to our economy, our social order, our basic governing structures, and our national security? Is that even possible? Could it happen? Well, here to help us to understand this and other cybersecurity threats we all face is Dan Trumbull. Dan is a global cyber risk advisor who works with governments and industry to understand and plan for how cyber and global threats are reshaping industries, policy, and strategy. He's the publisher of the Cyber Risk Report, a weekly briefing on the most important cyber risk developments around the world. He's a veteran of the United States military, the United States intelligence community, and a number of Silicon Valley companies. And you can find the Cyber Risk Report at cyberrisk.news, or you can email Dan at hello at dantrimbleoneword.com. And both of those links will be posted in the podcast version of this program. Dan, I know it's Mother's Day for you, too, with two young sons, so thank you so much for taking the time to be with us this morning. And... <clears throat> and to talk about such an important subject that nobody really thinks about sufficiently or addresses. And we know that because President Trump and congressional Democrats met to discuss spending as much as $2 trillion on, quote, critical infrastructure upgrades. But you and I both know that the most critical infrastructure in the 21st century is not transportation, 
which that $2 trillion would go for. Whether it's mass or individual, the thing that drives transportation, as well as industry, commerce, and yes, the government in the United States, is our electrical grid and the subset of that grid called the cellular grid. Do you remember that blackout that impacted the entire Northeast of the United States in 2003? 50 million people were powerless for seven hours. New York City was completely paralyzed. But in just a moment, Dan's going to tell us why that was just a slight tremor compared to what could happen in a very possible full-scale attack today. So, Dan, as we were walking in the building, um, you were commenting that it appears that three of the five virus protection software companies, five of the biggest, were hacked by Russians. You can't make this up. (laughs) Yeah, you can't make this up. (laughs) So tell us what the consequences of that are initially, and then let's go on to talk about the possible, if not, it's not probable, but the possible impacts that we need to learn to guard against. I've seen one report about it so far, and we don't know exactly which of the top five companies, apparently Bitdefender and Avast have both said it was not them, which kind of leaves, if I remember correctly, the other three are probably Norton, McAfee, and Kaspersky. Um, Whoever it was, though, I think the, the fear there is... What did they get for one? So uh, they got uh, virus databases and source code was what was reported. And from that, what could you do? Apparently no user information, stuff like that, that we've talked a lot about the last uh, uh, last session. But with source code and databases, you can certainly start to build more resilient malware. You start to build things that are designed to circumvent how the antivirus software works, which – Personally, I think we're going to start seeing a lot more of that in the in the coming years anyway as artificial intelligence starts to take hold and malware starts to become far more adaptive. Um, but I would certainly be very worried about having uh, potentially, whether it's Russian or anybody else, having any ha- criminal hacking group with the source code to how a lot of these programs operate. You could do some – you could build a lot of things to be more um, – to be able to get around a lot of the blockades that, that many of these products are able to put in place and circumvent the whole the whole system. And really, if we don't have that, a lot of us don't have much more. Um, yeah, it, it makes one think twice about even things like online banking that we've all gotten so used to or the the um, <coughs> my favorite, <coughs> Apple Pay. Well, and I think it also, <coughs> I think it underscores a lot of what we've talked about that what we do so far is not enough. We need whole new ways of thinking about security. We've relied on antivirus as your primary means of, of fending off potential, uh, potentially nefarious software for 35 plus years now. Is it effective? Sure. Is it enough? No, we're close. Wait a minute. It's not effective if the companies that produce it can get hacked so easily. Correct. And it takes, according to the uh, government IT watchdog, three weeks for it to be detected. Correct. But this is, and this is what I'm saying, it's not enough. It, is, it may be a starting point. It may be something that you put in place on all of your desktops, all of your other devices to help deal with the, the primary flow of, of potential, potentially nefarious software coming in and out of your device. But 
it's not going to prevent the problem from happening in the first place. And it's certainly not going to do anything to prevent what happens when a hacking group gets a hold of the source code and figure out ways to work around those very protections. We oh. need whole new ways of thinking about security. Uh, one of the things I talked about in, in my uh, cyber risk report brief this week is a new effort funded by DARPA. Um, a few years ago, DARPA put down quite a few million For, dollars. You and I both know what DARPA is, but most people don't. The defense. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm having a brain fart here. <laughs> what? The defense advanced. Uh, re- it's a defense department advanced research institute. Uh, exactly the acronym stands for. I can't remember off the top of my head. Amazingly enough, but yeah. um, DARPA invests a lot of money in cutting edge ideas and technologies to uh, to try to push the envelope and come up with something new. And a few years ago, they put down quite a few million dollars into theoretically unhackable, quote unquote, their words, not mine. <laughs> Uh, unhackable um, CPUs. The idea being that if you could move the move the security to the hardware itself, you won't necessarily have to be as reliant on software, which is much easier to circumvent. So what they did is they took a RISC-V processor architecture, uh, which is open source, and emphasized security instead of scalability, and they were able to build a CPU that literally encrypts its own code and ram- randomizes its own code and does that at a rate that's thousands of times faster than the most, the fastest and most efficient electronic hacking techniques that we're aware of. That we're aware of. Yeah. All right. It's, and for those of for those as we as we go to take a quick commercial break, and we're going to come back and talk about critical infrastructure and the what ifs. Um, but a CPU, for those of you who don't know, is a central processing unit. It's the brains of your phone and your computer. Um, and the the bottom line on what Dan has just explained to us is if you get a link and you don't recognize that link in any email, even if it's from a trusted source, do not open it. Act with caution. If you think you know what it is, but but you don't recognize that link, pick up the phone and call the person who sent it to you before you open it. That's the best protection we've got right now. And we'll be back in just a moment to talk about critical infrastructure and the electrical grid. You're listening to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back with Dan Trimble. And we're going to settle in now that we've warned you not to open any links in any emails that you get. Um, we're going to we're going to sit down and talk about the critical infrastructure, the most critical piece of infrastructure, and that is our electrical grid. Um, just think of, of how it's not just the switch you turn. It's your cell phone. It's the gas. It's the pump at the gas station. It's every way that you buy um, goods and services, etc. It drives. You can't have air traffic control, so you can't have aircraft taking off without electricity. Um, and even generators depend on fuel, and that fuel has to be pumped at some point. With electricity. So on that happy note, Dan, I'm going to turn it over to you. Um, we talked in our last session about industrial controls, but 
uh, and the interconnected nature across devices. But we didn't really talk at all about what could happen um, if there were some attack. You know, you talk a lot about critical infrastructure being among the most influential uh, and important in our world, that $2 trillion infrastructure upgrade package. And all of that is true. But when I think about when I think about that interconnected nature that we talked at length about last session, it's not just that it's not just the, that the electrical grid is, say, the most influential piece of critical infrastructure. Although I'd, I'd say that's probably a, a perfectly fair argument. When you think about who controls the world, it's not it's not money, it's not elites, it's not politicians, it's not the political class or any of those other things we talk about. It's the people who understand ones and zeros. And that's going to be true for the next century. And we need to start understanding that. Those who master the world of ones and zeros and how to manipulate them are going to be the ones who will be the superpowers of the 21st century and are going to be the ones who are able to um, control economic activity, to control warfare, to be able to uh, adapt all of those environments to their advantage. And so when I think about critical infrastructure and what it takes to defend it, we have to think big. We have to think big, broad, deep to make sure that we're able to ensure that these kinds of things aren't able to happen. So what kinds of things could happen? I mean, take a relatively small example. I did a, uh, I did a think tank study a couple of years ago in New York. We, we were looking at uh, the maritime ports in the United States and around the world and, and how massively operationally interconnected or codependent they are with other, other sectors of infrastructure, the electric grid, trucks, trains, you name it. And we are trying to understand how to, how you can possibly do cyber risk assessment of, say, the U.S. ports, right? When you've got all these other separately managed, separately regulated sectors that are completely independent, you don't have a whole lot of crossover planning, information sharing, intelligence sharing, any of that kind of stuff, let alone uh, coordination on threats. And so when we are trying to understand the attack surface and just how broad it is and whether or not you could attack another sector in order to – cause and effect on the ports that ever actually touching the ports directly. Uh, one of the scenarios we looked at was uh, was the electric grid. So imagine, for example, you're the port of Los Angeles or Long Beach or Miami. It doesn't make any difference, right? But you have massively huge electric grid dependencies. Uh, your reefer systems consume huge amounts of power. Reefer Wh- systems? Re- sorry, refrigerator systems. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of different pieces to how the port operates for to handle the movement of cargo. Certain kinds of cargo need to stay cold. Certain kinds of cargo need to be protected, hazmat, all that kind of stuff, right? And so a lot of these kinds of systems have enormous power dependencies. So what happens if you send send a a um, electrical pulse? An electrical pulse, or to change the control system remotely to on the electric substation that handles that particular customer. Uh, to spike the voltage. Spike the voltage enough, it's going to run right downstream and short-circuit everything else connected to that power line, right. no matter how far away it is, right? right. You, so now you could theoretically attack any certain kind of scenario, but uh, hit another industry in doing it. And those are very real kinds of concerns. But then you also have, say, your your doomsday-type scenario, um, so we talked about the uh, the power blackout in the northeast of the United States in 2003, where 50 million people were powerless for seven hours and New York City being completely paralyzed. I mean, it, people people were on television 
complaining that they had to walk up three flights of stairs to their apartment because um, their the elevators weren't working. So, you know, that that to me is a minor inconvenience compared to what you and I know both know could happen. And just for kicks, I remember one year climbing about 70 flights of steps in New York City just to see what it was like. I can't imagine <laughs> having to do that. Uh, but that was, that was a long time ago. But you know, something, When you were young and foolish. When I, yeah, when I could actually do something like that. That's right. But that, something like that was – it'd probably be a minor hiccup compared to what you could happen in a theoretical, theoretical full-scale type of attack. Um, so let, let's paint a picture here. Hackers might target your electric grid. Maybe they do it by phishing, hacking remote access systems or personal devices. Maybe they even get physical access, which does happen. There was a, uh, a case in Europe uh, a few years ago where hackers uh, hired somebody to break into a facility in order to get access to the computers that way. Uh, it does happen. Uh, but whatever, whatever means, they get in, they embed given, their malware. Given what we know about PG&E, it wouldn't be that hard. <laughs> and if they got into PG&E... They get into the Western region grid, and we all know, because you, we're both old enough to remember what happened in the 1990s when the entire Western grid went down. And I remember I was in San Francisco, and I needed to get across the Golden Gate Bridge, and it took me three and a half hours. And then we were at candlelight for probably... What was it? Twenty four, thirty six hours before I they got remember. us back. Something up. like that. Yeah. But you know, that's a good point. Cause this this is a good reminder that cybersecurity is also physical security. Physical security is also cybersecurity. These two things go hand in hand. We can't look at each one as a as an individual silo. You've got to look at it as a continuum of total security. And at what point you feel like you've you've effectively addressed both ends. But going back to that scenario, they embed their malware, but maybe they don't execute it right away. It sits on the network undetected for, for weeks, for months, just monitoring, snooping, looking around the network to learn how it's configured so that it can move about with ease whenever they're ready to, ex- to execute the attack. A lot of times when we hear about a cyber attack, we'll hear that – uh, whoever it was sat on the network for two years before they actually execute it. There's reasons for that. Um, sometimes they they just they're waiting for the right strategic moment to execute, but more often than not, it's sitting there doing network reconnaissance so they can learn how the network actually operates. The Experian uh, credit um, piece. Yeah, two was, years from they what were I hear. There, they were there for two Equifax. years. Equifax. Yeah, they were there for two years before. Um, they started to do anything, and it was another six months before Correct. they were detected. So again, in and, your and own computer, point, in your that, in your own computer, do not open <laughs> any any link from anybody you don't recognize. I'm, I'm telling you, we could solve sixty, seventy percent of the cybersecurity problems in the world if we just stopped opening file attachments and clicking on links in our email. But you know, it's it's a it's difficult, right? Because you've got to have that balancing act of convenience and the ability to get done the work that we need to get done. Yeah, but and, but but here's here I I agree with you. And you and I will open links every day from people we know and sources we know and trust. And we have really good site. We we have multiple redundancy but protection we're, but on we're our also, computers. We're but we're also accustomed to looking at the headers and, and looking to see if it's a legitimate email address because it might show up as being from somebody, for example. But instead of being at gmail.com, it might actually – if you look closely at the header, it might be from – uh, gmial.com or something like that, yeah. right? Just slightly different enough that it passes over most people, but actually takes you to more, to some hackers' nefarious website where they can inject stuff into your computer. So. And, and the other place you have to be really careful about that 
is in social media. Yes. Do very not much so. open if the the link unless you know the person unless you know the person and you recognize the link. If you open a link in in Facebook, you're exposing yourself. Especially now that we know that the virus protection has been compromised, you're exposing your computer and everyone else in your network. Talking about interconnection. In a true list, this this is something that impacts everybody at every organization, governmental, private sector, everywhere. Employees are just as, as likely to do something like this as any one of us at home. And so we all have to deal with the same problems. And these are one of the more common ways that the hackers are able to get access to the system so that they can then embed their malware and start doing their reconnaissance. So after weeks or months pass, they decide to execute their cyber attack. And going back to our electric grid example here. Maybe this is one scenario. Maybe they first disable the safety systems and their backups because these are the systems that control the generator synchronization. Uh, we'll, we'll get into that in just a second. Next, they might send control signals that rapidly open and close the rotating circuit breakers on the generators. Because those safety systems are no longer preventing desynchronization, the rapid opening and closing is using the inertia of the generator itself to effectively force the bearings of the generators out of sync. Okay. Scores of generators can be destroyed doing this. And it doesn't matter if they plan to hit 200 of them, but maybe they only destroy 50. The consequences of that could be quite significant. This is, this is for those of you, okay, because we're going to translate here. What Dan is saying is the physical speed um, with which the electrical pulses force the, the generators to move means that, that the the bearings in the generators get so hot that the generator itself, the generating instrument that makes the electricity, then fails. And can potentially cause fires. And can potentially cause fires. And if You're you, right. And this is an example of how a cyber attack, something purely electronic, manipulation ones and zeros, can actually very suddenly and very quickly, quickly deteriorate into full-scale kinetic physical effects on whatever the target may be. And boy, can I think of one offhand... But you know what? Uh, We're going to take a quick commercial break. And when we come back, I'm going to open the phone lines in case any of you have questions. And while we're at break, I'm going to tell Dan a story. Once I tell him, if he tells anybody, I'll have to kill him. (laughs) We'll be back in just a moment. Back to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy on 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back. We're, we're, we're talking here. Vince is whispering in my ear, we're back. Back to Dan, who's going to tell us about the doomsday scenario of what could happen. Well, we were talking about how you might be able to send uh, send control signals to uh, to parts of a uh, of a power generation system in order to cause physical inertia that allows you to throw the generators out of sync and potentially they could smoke, burn, start fires. And of course, if they start fires, maybe a nearby gas turbine explodes, right? So you've now taken out a huge amount of power capability. And yet at the point this has happened, we still don't even necessarily notice a cyber attack. The people who are responding there, they may have an inkling depending on how quickly they're looking at their cyber systems. But 
they there are many different physical things that could have caused that kind of a kind of a disaster too. So you have potentially 100 million people and most businesses across, I don't know, a dozen states that have no power, hundreds of billions of dollars in physical and economic damage could be likely, leaving no part of the economy untouched. Backup and diesel generators could be available to power processing plants, hospitals, um, things like that. So you, there's some minimization of, of potential life and death scenarios, but you have still lost almost everything else. Traffic lights, ATM machines, gas pumps, the internet, phones, mass transit systems, water distribution systems. There's a lot of things that are dependent on that power grid that would probably cease to function this kind of a kind of a scenario. Things like 911 could work, but I guarantee you they're going to have call volume far exceeding their dispatcher capability. And what if the cell phone networks are compromised? Most landlines, they aren't really landlines. We have our cell phones. No power, no phone. So at this point... Well, even even the phones that you have at home, even if you have a landline, the likelihood is that it also plugs in to an electrical outlet, unless you have a, a 40-year-old princess phone. Um, and, and so it, too, would fail. Yeah. So, and guess what? Once your cell phone battery goes, that doesn't work either. I mean, I thought about this last night, and it's the cascading impact, even, even the generator capability, hospitals, et cetera, are all dependent on getting gas. Yeah. So if you couldn't pump any more gas. Well, and not only that, but if you're a power operator, you have to consider if you have this kind of a this kind of scale of, of an incident taking place, at what point do you pull a plug in the whole thing in order to make sure the chain reaction doesn't continue? Because at this point, remember, we don't necessarily know it's a cyber attack. Operators will know about the fires and damaged equipment, but until it's all put out and the evidence is examined, are they necessarily going to know what started us in the first place. And as if that's not scary enough, no one will know how far, how deep this attack goes. No one's going to know if the malware is sitting on other places in the network or other networks nearby waiting for the right moment to start a second round. Nobody knows how many weeks, probably weeks, it will take to restore power. It's really impossible to calculate this kind of risk of this kind of an attack or quantify what the kind of damage might look like. It's truly a worst-case scenario. And... It's a perfectly fair question to be asked that why haven't we seen something like this yet and who is really capable of doing something like this? Are there cyber hackers out there who could do – this would be a very sophisticated uh, cyber attack. Yeah, there are probably some who are out there that, that could do something like this. Why we haven't seen it? I think we're still operating in a world where people are testing boundaries and going just far enough and something like this has massive casualty or civilian implications as well. This is not just nation state against nation state. This is against civilian populations, hospitals, schools, everybody else who depends on the electric grid. So there's some level of of restraint there. Um, but that's one of the but things. But it is a scenario. It is a plausible scenario. We have to be able to plan for all of these kinds of contingencies on this far extreme and the smaller scale, uh, potentially easier to execute kind of stuff I mentioned earlier. Yeah, but and and that's one of the things that worries me in terms of um, both our our international relationships, but also um, our why I thought it was so important to talk about the the electrical grid as part of as the most critical part of infrastructure is that 
this is from a war planning situation. This, these are the wars of the future that are aimed much more at civilian populations than armies in the field. It's less expensive if you are the attacking nation. It's much less expensive to do this kind of um, attack, and it is um, it, it's uh, requires less resource. Um, it's more stealthy. It's more and and again, it, the way in which wars are won and lost is the the impact on the civilian population. It's an interesting point because, at least in the free world, armies exist to to defend their to defend the people, to defend the civilian population. Um, constitutionally, that's that's why most most militaries are chartered, and so there's that argument that they should be able to do that, right? But cyber attacks have are they can be indiscriminate. And even when they're targeted, though, it's easier, I think, to hold risk over your civilian population uh, than you could in, in a lot of other ways. But you're right that the anonymity is part of it, right? So mm-hmm. if, if you are – it's cheaper to execute a cyber attack. It's easy to cover your tracks. It's relatively easy to make it look like it was somebody else. The only situations in which even if your adversary comes out and says, we think it was you based off of what you're willing to say publicly. That's a hard thing to to circumvent. So there's a certain amount of not just anonymity, but political cover, diplomatic cover, because you can hide behind how easy it is to, to cover your tracks and how easy it is to make it look like it was somebody else, and the fact that a lot of countries are not willing to say publicly how and why they might know whether or not uh, so-and-so was responsible for an attack. Yeah, I mean, we, we've demonstrated a you know, horrible word that we don't want to talk about, the Mueller report, um, demonstrates down to the keystroke that our ability to identify the person or, or the organization that did the deed that we are uh, investigating. But in a situation like this, what would be the risk of making a mistake is so high. Not only that, but we still have, we still have to be careful with how things are described, right? Especially mm-hmm. in a cyber world where people are just kind of incrementally testing boundaries, see what they can get away with, how far they can push you to the point where you would actually respond and, and in what way, what manner, what capacity would you actually respond? Think back to the uh, the Sony attack in, was it 2014? Yeah. Uh, if I remember correctly, the Obama Department of Justice did not want to call it an act of war. They did not want to call it a cyber attack. I think the specific word, if I remember correctly, was cyber vandalism. The idea being the moment that you call it war, the moment you call it an attack, you risk dramatic escalation because now your adversary is also worried about you responding with the full force of your military capabilities. Words matter. Words matter. And on that note, we have to go take a commercial break. And we'll be back in just a moment. And we'll repeat the phone number if you want to Get involved in the conversation. <clears throat> You're listening to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back with Dan Trimble um, talking about asymmetrical warfare and the importance of 
the electrical grid as critical, the most critical infrastructure, uh, because it drives everything else. And again, if you want to get involved in the conversation, 888-367-5329. And so while we were off the air uh, talking about attribution, uh, so you remember um, that the Iranians, their centrifuges in, because this is a great example of what can be done to your electrical grid and to the things that are connected to your grid in these asymmetrical attacks. And that is the so-called Stegnets um, attack in Iran where uh, we took half, somebody took half of their uh, centrifuges offline with a malware attack um, that has long been attributed primarily to the Israelis. Um, and, And that's a perfect example of what Dan is describing when a piece of malware can then impact your generation capability and that which is downstream from that capability. And so the entire point that we're trying to make in what's going to be the fourth segment here is that hardening this infrastructure um, is should be the most important, along with, of course, um, PG&E's responsibility not to set the state on fire, that these publicly owned utilities, you know, these so-called public utilities, which are privately owned by shareholders, who don't do enough to harden their infrastructure, that there needs to be a greater... Um, uh, greater oversight and more investment and more um, responsibility and accountability placed on these organizations. Dan, would you agree? I I would not only agree, but I think that needs to come from multiple different perspectives. So there needs to be board level accountability. And I, I was at a cyber conference last year where uh, a keynote speaker was on stage saying, you know, this is cyber attacks are now big priorities for boards of directors. Really? I don't see it. I don't see the massive investment in cybersecurity from a lot of different companies and a lot of different industries. I don't see chief executives getting fired when there's a massive breach of people's personal data or uh, board members stepping in during shareholder meetings to to hold to account the management team to make sure that, that things are getting done. I there's an increased awareness of it, but I'm not sure that translates into any kind of meaningful action for, for a large number of organizations. At Equifax, what, did anybody get fired? Don't get me started about Equifax. And what world <laughs> that company deserves to even exist anymore is a whole nother problem, a whole nother problem entirely. But you know, if, using that as an example, if I remember correctly, their CIO uh, or their CISO, one of them got, got fired. But it felt a lot like all the other different cyber attacks where – the company takes a short-term stock hit. They spend several million dollars hiring some some company to come in and do incident response and recovery and to clean things up. Um, it's they, business they might, for you, Dan. They, they might fire one or two uh, token executives, but at the end of the day, I get eighteen months of, of twelve to eighteen months of free credit reports. Big deal, right? And that's all she wrote. That's it. That's that's it. And after a year or two, everyone moves on their way and everyone's forgotten about it. We've all moved on despite one of the most egregious and horrible breaches of personal data and history that I can certainly remember. And they charge you, by the way, if you want 
if you want like black web protection and and maybe because we've got a few minutes we should talk a little bit about the black web because again don't open links you don't recognize um it is is that that i don't think people really they hear it they hear the words but i don't think they know what the consequences are or how that relates to corporate responsibility before we go that that route really good point but let me let me backtrack one quick second here I don't want to place all the blame on the individual companies when something like this happens and, and in terms of how they respond. That is a it is perfectly fair to, to criticize them. They're the ones who left their left their door open on the network in the first place. They're the ones who allowed whether through negligence or ignorance allowed something to happen in the first place. But the pressure and the accountability has to come from not just within. The board directors are a good starting point. It has to come from government too. D- there has doesn't to be- Congress doesn't Congress have a role to play? enforcing the strengthening of the cyber uh, defenses of these publicly important privately owned corporations they do but again in a free country like ours you're talking about privately owned privately operated privately funded networks that government rightfully should not have their hands on right correct but a lot of these infrastructure providers that are privately owned and operated, ha- you have enormous public stakes in ensuring the defense and the security of, of their networks. So there's there's a tug of war that's playing out there from a policy and a legal standpoint to try to understand the extent to which government can and should be involved. Now, I am personally of the mind that we have a Congress that, by and large, for the most part, does not understand any of this at all. No. There's, <laughs> there, and anyone who, who watched the hearings with Facebook and, and all, all the other stuff going on in the last couple of years, it just screamed loud and clear that there's, there's a significant – I don't know if it's generational or what, but there's a significant knowledge gap in terms of understanding it, not just the technology and how it works, but the business models – that these companies are using Correct. and how those are changing over time. But that's a whole other session. That's probably a whole hour all by itself. Um, it is worth mentioning, though, that there are some efforts that leave me increasingly optimistic that we might be in a position to start wrapping our heads around some of this on a national level pretty soon. Uh, Senator Ben Sass, a uh, Republican from Nebraska, I believe, and the 2019 uh, National Defense Appropriations Act authorized the creation of a cyberspace solarium commission. Um, Short version of the history lesson is that Eisenhower in 1953 was faced with a growing nuclear threat from Russia. Tremendous uh, indecision and uh, lack of consensus within his administration about how to face it. And so he he formed a solarium commission to uh, charter three distinct groups of government experts are each armed with the same exact intelligence to tell him what their recommended course of action is. And, of course, you know, we all know what happened uh, going forward. And But that particular Solarian Commission happened to be probably one of textbook examples of good long-term strategic planning for government and probably one of the best examples of it in this country's history. Trying to take that same model today, the, the uh, Cyberspace Solarian Commission was uh, officially launched this week and it's staffed with 14 members, bipartisan, of course, also government and industry. There's people from academia, there's people from business, there's people from uh, the defense community, the intelligence community. You've got all kinds of different principles in there. And their job, armed with all the same amount of information, is to study three different courses of action and make some recommendations on a national strategic plan for how to 
for how to handle cyberspace, including how far we would go, at what point is it an act of war, how do we respond, and what way would we respond, these kinds of things. We have operating plans, obviously, for cyber defense and cyber offense and stuff like that. We don't have a strategic objective, strategic plan on a national level that ties together all these different elements of cyber that we have kind of scattered across the whole of government. And It's and- not a whole of government approach right now. It's just – hundreds of individual silos kind of acting in, in accordance with their agency's priorities, not across national priorities. And and so the solarium will bring us at some point a national strategy to which all of those little individual po- points and parts will have to be um, integrated and, yes. and coordinated. And that's a Herculean feat for Congress. I can't agree on a damn thing. However... We are incrementally working in the right direction. In fact, this commission is coming into place now. gives me some hope that we're at least having the conversations that need to be had about how to tie all of this together and how to set left and right limits but on how the government But with what sense can. of urgency? We uh, should have done this years ago. Better late than never, isn't it? Yes, but we also know about government speed. I And having spent a lot of years in government, I am well accustomed to government speed and trying to force it faster as much as I can in my capacities, which yes. is sometimes yes. a head-banging yes. <laughs> yes. effort to do. Yes, but, or as I used to say when I came mar- marching down the hall um, at the Pentagon and some places in California, uh-oh, here comes trouble. But the commission, <laughs> the NDAA of 2019 does require that the commission's members present their recommendations by September 1st of this year. Okay. And so I think, at least it's moving with a defined timeline in the right direction. And I think that's a great place. Better than us. nothing. Yes. That that gives us something to look forward to in the fall. And that's a great stopping point for today. And um, again, Dan, thank you so much for your time because I know it's Mother's Day for you too. And the next time Dan's with us, we're going to talk about something that really interests me. The deep, dark web. It's out there. It's a danger to all of us. It's where all of your data is. And we don't understand it at all. We'll be back in just a moment with a few closing thoughts. Now, back to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy on 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back with just a couple of closing thoughts. Um, As I said, we're going to have Dan back again to talk about the dark web. But personally, I'm happy that um, the generational gap in Congress is being filled by people like Ben Sass who understand uh, the importance of um, national security in the 21st century. Uh, We have too many people in Congress who are still fighting the battles of the 19th and 20th century. Uh, One of the reasons I do this show is to help you to understand the 21st century. And Dan's going to chime in here. His his head's going (laughs) up and down. (laughs) I I think a a good example that came up, uh, I think it was maybe a little over a week ago on the second or so. Uh, the White House, uh, according to a number of reports and news, had decided to renege on its uh, approval of $20 billion in Navy spending over the next 20 years that was allocated primarily for advanced technology, cybersecurity, stuff like that, in order to build another aircraft carrier. Now, kinetic wars are not going away. There's always going to be a need for force protection. 
especially in places like the Pacific and the 21st century. I, I recognize that, but we are not exactly strong aircraft carriers, and all the carriers in the world don't make any difference at all if we can't defend the networks and that man, equip, and power those assets. And we aren't seeing investments, heavy investments in a lot of other aspects of cybersecurity, and, and to an extent, I think the, the administration has... Uh, has downplayed its importance and deprioritized it, and there's certainly a, a void of cyber leadership within it. But these are examples of planning for a fe- theoretical future conflict. We are right here, right now, losing the cyber war today. An aircraft carrier is not going to fix that. I get that, which is why we're having these conversations, to help people to understand what they should be telling their Congress members is important to them, because it is Congress who allocates the money. So... Um, The good news is that in about two weeks, um, Reimagine America will also be available at ricochet.com. We have been asked to join a national uh, podcasting network, and um, we're totally thrilled about that, and we'll have some more details for you uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, We're going to be starting to load data in about a week. I, I think it's already on. I checked on Ricochet today. It's it's already there. I know it's there, but we haven't loaded the data yet. Oh, have okay. you? I mean, I haven't noticed that you've loaded any data. Have you? I I don't. Well, there's certainly some data on the website. You can already listen to one episode on Ricochet.com. Well, Scott's ahead of me. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm in the process of moving. You know, some, sometimes the daily, daily life gets ahead of my electronic life. But we are live on ricochet.com. And again, um, it's a center-right, centrist uh, platform with about three and a half million visitors a month. And um, I can't tell you how honored I am to have been asked to join. So um, if you miss us here, if you miss us here, that's a good place to find us. In the last 30 seconds, next week, we're going to be joined by Mark Kikorian from the Center for Immigration Studies. And I promise you an interesting uh, and challenging hour of radio, uh, as well as podcast at Ricochet. So we will uh, be in touch. Um, uh, and, in, and in the meantime, in the meantime, because... I have 10 seconds. Ladies, have a wonderful Mother's Day. Being a mom is both the most wonderful job in the world and one of, and the toughest. And so, guys, step up today. We'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.